Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the ANU. And I head the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre and also the Children's Policy Centre. And today I'm all on my lonesome in terms of presenting as my other half, Dr Anna-Greta Hunter, is away being a cardiologist. But she'll be back for us next week. And my thanks to Anna Greta for holding the fort last week while I was away doing some research. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. Right here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the Asia Pacific's leading graduate policy school. If you have any reflections on the 200 episodes, now 201, of Policy Forum Pod, please do get in touch and let us know how you think we're tracking. And thank you so much for all your support over the years. I'm very excited this week because I start teaching my course on global development policy and global development thinking. And this is always an absolute highlight for me as I get to share some ideas with our amazing students here at Crawford. If you're interested in finding out what we offer, both face-to-face and online, do have a look at our degree programs and short courses. You can find all the information you need at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. We hope that you've been enjoying the episodes in our most recent mini-series on Indigenous wellbeing. We were hoping to bring you a fourth and final episode this week, but unfortunately the stars haven't aligned this time, but we will be returning to that topic throughout 2021. And we'll be using the conversations that we've had over the past three weeks as a touchstone throughout the year. What we do have today on the pod is a very timely discussion and one that I'm delighted to invite my fabulous Crawford colleague, Elise Klein, to join us in. This week, Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced a permanent increase to Australia's job seeker payment of $50 a fortnight or $25 a week. 
It's the first permanent increase to Australia's social security payment in decades, but it is not the largest increase that we've seen over time. And as Peter Whiteford and Bruce Bradbury point out in an excellent piece in The Conversation on Tuesday the 24th of February, it's not particularly generous. It's slated to cost about $9 billion over four years, and the government has said that it's seeking balance. Prime Minister Morrison said, Now I have no doubt that whatever the rate you set the payment at, there will always be suggestions by some that there should be more. There'll be some who suggest it should be less. At the same time, senior government sources have been quoted in the media as saying that a $50 per fortnight increase in the rate was the lowest figure the party believed would be palatable to the public. Many in the social services sector and many Australians receiving benefits have expressed dismay at the permanent increase, which amounts to only roughly $3.50 a day and is so much less than even the reduced temporary coronavirus supplement of $75 a week. Strikingly, as Peter Whiteford and Bruce Bradbury and many others have pointed out, the new rate places Australia's unemployment benefits as second lowest in the OECD, just above Greece. But of course, the New Start rate placed us at the very bottom of the OECD. While the temporary coronavirus supplements provided some relief, there are real concerns about what impact Australia's low unemployment benefit is having on some of the country's most vulnerable citizens. While the government has rightly pointed out that many people on unemployment benefits also receive an energy subsidy, that subsidy amounts to only 65 cents a day. And while some receive rental assistance, that's insufficient to meet the soaring costs of rental in Australia. People on benefits and in private rental accommodation are amongst the worst off in Australia. The new rate announced this week is also accompanied by quite punitive measures, including a hotline for prospective employers to report individuals who've refused to take jobs. And this extends considerably the surveillance under which people who are unemployed are placed under. The criticism of the job seeker rate is not the only controversial issue surrounding Australia's social security system. The devastating impacts of the robo-debt scandal have been well documented and the Australian government was required to repay over $700 million. But that process shattered many people's lives before those repayments were made. The cashless debit card scheme has also been the subject of serious concern. So today we want to ask, what will the impact be of the change to JobSeeker? And what can policymakers do to ensure Australia's social security system is doing what it is supposed to be doing, supporting those who are most in need? But we also want to go a bit deeper and unpack some of the ideas and assumptions that underpin current policy approaches. I'm absolutely delighted to have joining me today, Dr. Elise Klein, OAM. Elise, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Elise is a senior lecturer in public policy here at the Crawford School. She researches in a, a wide range of areas around social policy and around feminist political economy. She's done a lot of work um, around the impacts of low rates of benefits on humans' lives. She's done a lot of work around um, the cashless debit card. Elise has also worked on the UN Secretary-General's high-level panel on women's economic development and with the Human Rights Committee. 
within the United Nations General Assembly. And in 2019, Elise very deservedly was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia. So Elise, so good to have you here. Thank you. I wanted to start today by spending a little bit of time talking about the announcements and the permanent changes to JobSeeker and what that will really mean for people. But before we do that, and before we start to talk about the rate and what that low rate means, I wanted to hear your thoughts on the ideas, the assumptions and ideologies that underlie social policy in Australia today. And I wondered if we could do that by maybe taking a little historic detour and talking about the where some of these ideas come from. Um, we saw in England from the 1500s right through to World War II, a series of poor laws that were really about controlling behaviour um, and ensuring that people who were deemed to be poor behaved in ways that were seen as um, socially appropriate. So without getting too caught in the depths of history, the elements of this week's announcement around compliance um, do seem to be rather striking in terms of control and deterrence. Yeah, I mean, they do. And it's easy, I think, in sort of contemporary moments to think, oh, this is new or this is just about this moment. But I think it is useful to to look at the continuities of our histories. And I mean, Australia is a colony of Britain. Um, and as you rightly point out, that these ideas have been a long-standing set of ideas within um, policies uh, affecting who gets called the poor, um, all the way back to Britain. Um, and, you know, you, you point out the poor laws, but particularly this idea in the poor laws in Britain was this one of less eligibility. And so this was one where the idea that you, anybody that, to make sure that you're targeting the right poor, so this is the sort of moral economy of um, deserving and non-deserving poor, which we still, of course, see very much today, um, the idea of less eligibility was to make the conditions in workhouses um, so bad that only the very, very poor would turn up. So if you were, and this was sort of a test that if you couldn't handle, um, you'd only be able to handle uh, being that being put in those conditions and under that a level of destitution if you were really really destitute, um, and so you see. I mean, we didn't have the poor laws in Australia, but um, through yeah, being a colony, we had the Vagrancy Act, we had workhouses, and the ideas of less eligibility still continue today. Uh, and this is, you know, you see this reflected in the idea of of the rate of job seeker and. Before that new start and, and, you know, the ideas of, that you see in political discourse around making sure that it's enough to compel people into the labor market. So, um, keeping the payment so low that you would only take it if you absolutely were desperate. Otherwise, you would go off and find work. Now, of course, the issue is, is that there aren't enough jobs. There was not enough jobs even before we were in a recession. We are still in a recession. Um, and so it's concerning that these ideas are, are still front and centre of policy today. Elise, what have you seen in your research about the trade-off that people might need to make when we see the rate of um, previously new start but now job seeker being very, very low? Do we have the concern that people will start to need to make trade-offs between the conditions of work, time with family, the ability to undertake essential non-paid caring work, 
and paid employment. Mm. You know, we've certainly seen in our research um, in countries of the global south, people having to make those trade-offs because there are no benefits. Mm. Is that something that you see in Australia? I mean, it's an interesting question. So, I mean, I've done some work with uh, women that find themselves on this uh, program called Parents Next. And Parents Next puts a range of, range of conditions on particularly single mums who find themselves on this program. Um, it's punitive. Um, and, uh, and so there's an assumption here that you need to compel these women into the labour market, but it's overlooking uh, all the work that women are already doing looking after children. Now, um, unfortunately, uh, in the sort of discussions around social security, labour market, there's a hyper-focus on uh, paid employment and a complete under-focus on the contributions of unpaid uh, care work um, that particularly women undertake. And so you have women who are single um, looking after their children uh, being targeted uh, as being welfare dependent uh, because they need social security because they do not have any other time to go find other paid employment or the paid employment uh, might not uh, be appropriate for their care responsibilities because they're the single um, carer for their children. Uh, and so they're targeted by this program, but it overlooks the fact that they are um, uh, giving all sorts of contributions to society that uh, care um, of children, of elderly, of community is extremely economically productive work in that the society and the economy do not exist without this work. Yet they are, the, so we are dependent on their work, if you like, but yet they get called welfare dependent. Um, another piece of research that we've just started um, uh, analysing the results of was looking at what people were able to do um, when they got the extra supplements, um, the $550 COVID supplement and what they're able to do with their time. Uh, and so People were able to do all sorts of important things, but one was definitely with the extra money, being able to um, to provide better for their children and themselves. So, you know, this is a matter about survival. So people are talking about being able to purchase uh, basic needs that they weren't able to buy before they were um, given the supplement. So this was back on the the um, small uh, new start rate of four, $40 a day, which is only just marginally being being increased with these new announce, announcements that you um, talked about, Sharon. Um, so people are going without uh, medicines. People are going without uh, uh, food. So, so one person talked about having to water down their baby's milk so it, their baby's milk would go further. I mean, these, these are matters of survival um, that are having to be traded off uh, when when people are on such a low amount, um, and 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 it's extremely concerning. You know, it's it's interesting to hear about some of that research, Elise. Last week, um, I was away from the pod and I was um, doing a, a series of roundtables around child poverty. And we were talking to not-for-profit service providers. Um, and there were you know, the conversations about what people had spent the um, coronavirus supplements on was, was you know, very wide. It was an incredibly wide range of things. But there was one example of a, a family who had saved those additional payments and managed to buy a car, you know, fairly inexpensive car, but it bought this car. And what was striking about that was that was going to be transformative because 
suddenly they could take the children to school. They could take the children to um, sporting events. They could go and get the shopping rather than relying on public transport in an area where the public transport was very inadequate. And so this was going to sort of transform this family's life over, lives over time, assuming they could continue to pay the petrol. And I think we, we, we may kind of hear critiques, I think, of people looking at that and saying, well, they can't be doing too badly if they can afford to buy a car. But actually, here was a family using that money incredibly wisely to try to invest in their futures and kind of provide a buffer against what they knew was coming. Mm. Did you see kind of that kind of long-term thinking? Absolutely. And thanks for, yeah, I mean, that's interesting to hear that example. Um, in our research, absolutely. So um, that people were using the money to invest in longer-term um strategies to further engage with the economy later on um, or immediately. So people were investing in um, fixing their cars is one one thing that came up a lot, Um, getting new wheels on cars or getting them restarted again because they'd broken down, they couldn't restart them, Um, investing in a laptop for work. but also investing in study um, and and looking at starting courses or starting courses. Uh, um, and so people were trying to use this money to invest in in the, being able to engage in further economic activity, which flies in the face of this kind of um, stigma that has long been standing around people who are considered the undeserving poor, um, where there's a stigma about people do not know how to look after themselves, do not know how to look after their money, that are irresponsible with money. I mean, that's the whole idea behind the cashless debit card. But what we're seeing is that people are, of course, extremely um, thoughtful and uh, responsible with their money, um, using it uh, for forward planning, uh um, for their children, but also to pay off all sorts of debts that they had. Um, that was another thing that came up, um, that they were able to get ahead or to feel like they had at least had some breathing space from the debt collectors and and all of that that, that comes with, you know, living a life of in- extraordinary economic insecurity. As I hear you talking about the way people use that money to, to try to get a little bit of distance between them and the disaster of the debt collectors or, you know, the total destitution. Um, I think about some of the research that we've done with, with children in Australia who have talked about what they do, the strategies they undertake when they're living in context of, you know, of severe income poverty to try to protect their parents. So not taking homeschool excursion forms, not asking to play sport or engage in any other activity. Um, you know, young people choosing the subjects at school that won't require additional materials or won't require additional costs because they know their parents can't afford it. Um, and often there are equity programs at school to support them, but but those young people don't know about them. And so they make those decisions themselves in the interests of their families. So, you know, we, we see these strategies that are quite heartbreaking to see play out. What do you think is going to happen now? We've got an increase from where New Start was, but a decrease from where people were, you know, 
during during COVID-19? Yeah, I think the psychological impacts are huge and, you know, and that's part of the sort of hostile conditions that are created and, you know, we're talking about deterrence late earlier, the sort of hostility of these programs, they're, they're material in terms of the ways in which people are forced into sort of deprived lives, well, they're forced into deprivation, material deprivation, but also that comes with an extraordinary amount of psychological trauma, stress, dread, shame, um, and that really impacts in all the ways that you, you just described. In our research, um, when we were asking what people were able to do with the $500, 550 supplement, um, it was at a time where it had also reduced down to $250, $250 a fortnight. Uh, and already at that point, so we asked people if, if what, what that had meant for people's lives then. Already people were starting to talk about going without. So again, starting to watch what they were buying, um, reducing the amount of food that they were buying. Um, and all sorts of strategies because they knew the money was going down and it wasn't going to go as far as the $550 supplement. So basic needs were having to be cut. Um, so that was, that was then. And so now it's going to get cut even more. People again reported at that point that the stress had increased, um, that they started to feel more anxiety. The other question we did ask also was not just about what they were able to do, um, with the supplement, but there was a subgroup of that people that had their mutual obligation suspended or um, or reduced, we asked what they were able to do with their time because that's another thing, this sort of needing to control people's time and this, this you know, that sort of um, stigma around people bludging, which has been, you know, a, 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 a sort of a, it's been weaponised against the poor. Um and people were talking about all sorts of important productive activities. We've talked about how um, people were planning for the future. This, this group of people were absolutely using time for study, looking for work. Uh, and so, you know, it sort of flies in the face of that idea that that um, that people need work conditionalities uh, and punitive conditionalities to force them into work. People were doing this when they got their time back and, and without the stress of being hounded by, by job agencies. Uh, but also people were doing all sorts of community work too. And so they were contributing in all sorts of ways, starting social enterprises. People talked about um, looking after people in their community, um, elderly. There was a whole range of ways in which people, when they got their time back, uh, were able to further um, um, input and support people around them and the community around them. So, you know, all of this uh, now that the mutual obligations are going to be more harsher, um, that the payments are decreasing, uh, this is really going to disrupt what people were able to do in this period. Elise, we might take a short break now. Uh, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment to continue this conversation. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Elise Klein from the Crawford School of Public Policy, and we're talking about the recent announcements around the changes, the permanent changes, to JobSeeker. Elise, at the announcement of the changes, the Minister for Families and Social Services, Anne Rustin, talked about ensuring that the social security payment doesn't disincentivise people from working. And we've been talking about the things that people have actually done uh, with the additional money that they received during the coronavirus supplements. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts a little more on this idea of social benefits, social security benefits acting as a disincentive for people to find work and how we think about that in the context of the point that you were making earlier about the importance not only of paid work but of unpaid contributions to societies. Yeah, I mean, it's just such an old idea, this sort of de-incentivising people to work – my research has with people who are this sort of targeted group um you know people do want to work if they can work but we have to understand or remind ourselves that not everybody can work um for ver- for various reasons um and so you know you might be a carer for example you might have a disability and we have to remember that um that criteria or eligibility to be able to get disability payments um has been tightened recently and so you've got a lot of people falling into the job seeker category who do have disabilities um but don't fit that that criteria for the extra extra help um and so people have all sorts of reasons why they might not uh, be able to be working, and so this kind of like overarching um, policy setting of of not wanting to dis- disincentivize people is really really problematic for that reason, and also for the reason that there isn't enough jobs for everybody. So even if you want to work, um, you might. You, there aren't enough jo- jobs, and that's part of the problem of being in a recession. But even before um, the recession hit, there weren't enough jobs for everyone. Um, this is the work that ACOS and others have have long documented, uh, and so this idea is really problematic. And so what happens then is we dehumanise um, and and create conditions of hostility, of cruelty, uh, of destitution for people uh, who are in who are in tricky situations. We um, last year on the pod had a series of conversations um, around a well-being economy, broadly defined, and different ways of thinking about our societies and our communities. Is it time that we started to redefine work and to think quite differently about the various ways in which people can make contributions to their societies and how we might value that? And if we need to do that, how do we start that conversation? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a conversation that's been going for for a long time, um, but but for some reason it, it hasn't translated into to policy. That um, feminists have long been making the point that that uh, particularly the work that women uh, to undertake because of social norms regulate this work as as something that women. Women do, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way at all. But, you know, the caring of children, um, the caring of elderly, um, but also uh, First Nations scholars have long made this point also and the importance of uh, the ways in which people contribute and care for country, compare, can, uh, care for community, keep culture alive amidst, you know, very punitive um, settler colonial settings uh, here in Australia. Uh, so all of that work is extremely important socially and culturally, but also economically, um, that, you know, uh, country is productive um, because of all the work that First Nations people have done over the years, that um, society is held together because of all the extraordinary work of raising children and looking after children and elderly and, and you know, all the care and love that gets put into that work. That keeps us going and it keeps a base for an economy to function. Um, yet this gets completely overlooked and there's such a narrow focus on contribution as something as being, you know, a job that you, pay, that, that you might work. Um, and we really need to rethink that. So how that, that changes? That's a really good question, Sharon. Maybe, maybe you might have some thoughts because, um, because I think it is such an important thing. Um, and, you know, with the future of work being so precarious in the changes that are going on, um, but which are changes that have existed in the global south for uh, conditions that have existed in the global south for a long time, the informal economy is the formal economy. People have lived precariously since colonisation. Um, and so you see this sort of now these conditions catching up in the global north, um, we must be thinking about how we redefine work. Um, it's well o overdue and how we get our policymakers to see that, yeah, is really important. You said we've been having these conversations for a long time and as you said that I was I was dredging my memory to think Wendy Marilyn Waring write her mm -hmm. book Counting for Nothing. And that's right. 1970s perhaps? I think, 1980s? I think that's right, yeah. <laughs> so we have been having these conversations now for a very, very long time. Mm. Um it's one of the, the the ways we can think about these things are either through a university but universal basic income or genuinely universal essential services mm. um, and their conversations or both or both, <laughs> or both. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and their conversations that are not appearing um, in the mainstream debates at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it is a shame. And I think, I think what's interesting though is because when people talk about a basic income or when people talk about universal um, basic services, people say, oh, but the cost. But we've actually seen in the, this recession, these are political choices that are made, um, that are, you know, a sign, a signature from the treasurer, uh, that, you know, masses of the population are lifted out of poverty straight away. Um, that, you know, huge amounts of spending, uh, for 
for for all sorts of programs can be can be done and and people say oh but but that costs money but yes but you have to also think about the ways in which the economy benefits so what does it mean when you know over a million people who would be otherwise subject to poverty um on the on a low job seeker amount um when they are lifted above the poverty line and have uh the ability to engage in the economy to um create social enterprises uh to feed themselves but also to look after others um to repair their cars, to uh, you know, further study uh, and and buy food um, and medicine. What that means uh, for the economy, and and I think it's a very short sighted vision just to look at the sort of balance sheet that that the economy is way more di- dynamic than that, and and we must we must think about it like that. Elise, you. Um we're speaking a few minutes ago um, about some issues around Indigenous Australia and what we can learn from Indigenous Australians. And we've had the incredible pleasure over the last three weeks of talking with some amazing Indigenous leaders about wellbeing from a range of different perspectives. Um, and there have been some fundamental issues that have been consistently raised that you've also raised again. Um, but you mentioned when you were talking a minute ago that we need to recognise that Australia is a settler colonial society. Can you tell us what that means and what the ongoing implications are for the way that we think about policy and particularly welfare policy in this country? Yeah, I mean, well, particularly around welfare policy, that that it has been used as a very punitive tool against First Nations people. So, you know, we've been talking broadly about those that are stigmatised and those that are sort of considered the undeserving poor. Um Within the settler colonial context, which means that, you know, um, colonizers came here, um, that, uh, independence was never given, uh, to First Nations people, um, and therefore, you know, and have, and they have been subjected to all sorts of attempts of elimination over the years. Um, but with the sort of erection of, of, of the Australian settler society, uh, First Nations people have been um, forced or or coerced into assimilating into Australian society, and those that don't um, are often targeted, and and they're targeted in various various ways. Um, and welfare has been one tool in which people have been targeted. Um, so, I mean, this has been a long. There's a long, long story here, um, including the use of rations, um, all the way up to contemporary forms of of work for the dole uh, and so again, you you have groups of First Nations people uh, uh, living, particularly living remotely, uh, su- subjected to this program um, called the Community Development Program (CDP), which is super punitive, um, and it's only looking at the if people are employed or not. So it completely overlooks the um, work, other productive work that people are doing, caring for community, caring for country, caring for kids, um, and it's just tiring. People people saying, no, you're unproductive um, and so they're forced onto this super punitive work for the doll program which has high breaching rates because it completely mismatches um, the lived reality of people living remotely. Um, So that, I mean, that's one. The cashless debit card is another um, where, you know, people again are assumed as as being problematic, um, uh, not assimilating into settler society and therefore they are targeted through through welfare. Um, You know, in my own research in the East Kimberley 
people make note of, of the, the continued colonization, um, where, you know, talking about the cashless debit card, they've, you know, reflect on this is like going back to the rations, ration days, that they're seeing a continuity of the colonial presence in their life, um, through welfare policy. Uh, and this is extremely concerning. So whilst, you know, we say, okay, well, you know, yes, colonization happened, it continues to happen. And social security is a, is a tool in that process. Elise, we'll need to wrap up shortly, but before we do, let's imagine utopia for a moment. We've had some pretty <laughs> negative elements to this conversation. So let's put politics aside. And let me ask you what a, a genuinely first-rate social security system might look like. If we were to get to that kind of positive place, what principles should such a system be based on? And are there examples around the world that we can look to? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, your idea before, you raised before about, you know, um, centering care, I, th- I think that would, I think that would be excellent. You know, this kind of, um, acknowledging people for, as, as human beings, um, and, and bringing human, uh, bringing the humanness back into the way in which, uh, social policy, um, is, is deployed, I think would be extremely important. Look, I mean, I am a big advocate of basic, basic income. Um, and I think, you know, by providing an economic floor for people, um, is extremely important. And I don't think that's that radical. I think, you know, basically we, we saw something very similar to a basic income with the $550 supplement when mutual obligations were reduced or suspended. Um, and that, fundamentally change people's lives. It's not that hard, um, but I think it's change. I think what we have to do is to unpick some of these long-standing narratives um, around uh, people who need support, um, and 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 re and reworking them into something more closer to reality, as that you know not everyone can find work because there aren't enough jobs, and uh, and that. Um, and people do all sorts of other things with their time that is extremely important too. And we, we need to, uh, embrace that, um, and value that, uh, because it is valuable. And if we were to think about the present moment, um, and particularly some of those developments over the past week and the announcements of the new rate, but also the announcement of the requirement of, of people demonstrating that they've looked for 20 jobs each month, um, the the establishment of the hotline for people to report, you know, this kind of punitive um, environment that you, you have critiqued so beautifully. If we take ourselves back to, to that situation, what is the one recommendation that you'd give to policymakers right now to improve the, the system as it stands? Yeah, I mean, it would be go back to the $550 supplement at least and um, get rid of mutual obligations. I mean, they're two things that they, they've already shown. They can do it with a flick of a pen and at the very least uh, that, that's where we should, we should return. And to the, the the undoubted response from some that that would act as a, a disincentive for people to to take work. What I, would your your kind of one line message be on that? We'll look at the research that it's not actually true at all. That people contribute 
um, and were and are extremely productive. Um, and you know, these are our fellow citizens, our fellow human beings, and we really need to revisit those assumptions um, with reality. Elise, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you today. I feel as though this conversation could go on for much, much longer. Uh, you've given us a lot of food for thought. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Elise. I certainly did. And that final point that she made about the need to unpick long-standing narratives and to look for the counter-narratives, I think is really important. And it takes us back to some of the conversations that we had during our mini-series last year on the wellbeing economy, and certainly takes us to some of the points that were being raised um, over the last three episodes, where we were looking at these issues from an Indigenous perspective and understanding understanding just how much we can learn from our Indigenous leaders. So perhaps what we need is a new story to craft about um, the future and the vision for our country. Thank you, listeners, so much for joining us today. Please get in touch with us. Let us know what you think about some of the ideas that we talked through today um, and more broadly about the issues that we're talking about on the pod. You can contact us on Twitter at... APPS Policy Forum, or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. The best way to contact us is through our Facebook group. Just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. I don't think Facebook have taken it upon themselves to ban us just yet. So please do leave a review. And remember that you can subscribe to us on your throughout your favourite podcast platform. Um, we're on Acast, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally download. We'll be back next week with another episode. And Anna Greta Hunter will be back with us again next week. So we're looking forward to that. But for now, it's bye-bye from me, Sharon Bessel. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.